the computer. Okay, I should be recording. Yes. Uh, this is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson, and we have a very special guest with us again, Anna Hammond. Anna, who are you? What is your background? Um, well, um, my background, I, I, this is kind of a tough one. I don't have a traditional teacher background, I would say. I'm not someone that came out of um, undergraduate, started teaching right away, and I've been teaching for the last 30 years. Um, so I did, I went to St. Cloud State, graduated in 98, um, did not at all care for my student teaching experience. It did not feel like a good fit at all. Um, and moved around a little bit after that. I was, they did encourage me to apply for a position there. Um, and I didn't even apply for it because I thought I am not cut out for this. Um, so I ended up moving to Iowa not long after that. I did do some subbing and some long-term subbing and the subbing actually I enjoyed quite a bit, but I thought it was just the temporary nature of the thing. And I felt a little freer as a sub. Um, and I didn't realize it was my student teaching experience, not teaching itself that had kind of soured me on the whole thing, so but I ended up, hmm? oh, go ahead. What's your current situation? Where are you currently? Doing? Oh, my current situation. So I live in Northern Minnesota. Um, I ended up going back and um, being a high, I was a high school English teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, and right now I'm an MTSS academic and curriculum specialist um, in Northern Minnesota. And, and this is my second year, will be my second year of doing that position. You mentioned there was a shortage in teaching, a high turnover. What do you yes. think was the cause of that? Uh, I think it's several things. I think that um, we were headed we were headed this way before COVID. And I think COVID sort of accelerated a lot of things. Teaching during COVID was very difficult. Um, things changed very quickly in education. Normally things do not change that quickly. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we went from you know, teaching all in person to teaching some in person, some that were home every other week and some that were at home all the time. Um, and then trying to figure out how to make all of that work. Um, and then for our area too, trying to figure out how to make all of that work when about 30% of our students do not have internet access, reliable internet access or devices to get online, but yet they were expected to be learning online. And so that was all very difficult. Um, and then coming out of COVID, um, our students, I, I think they just, what I'm noticing is um, a little bit of immaturity, definitely. Um, so we talk about the learning loss all the time. And I, I was like, you know, gearing up for when we came out of COVID that I was going to have students that were academically two years behind. Um, and really academically, my high school students, they were okay. You know, they weren't academically two years behind, but I would say they were socially, emotionally <laughs> two years behind. And they had lost a lot of their ability to self-regulate um, and to deal with conflict. Mm. And so that was, you know, I needed to shift gears pretty quickly to, you know, okay, we need to like spend some time figuring out how we're going to work together as a community of learners. Um, and then I think too, there was a lot of um, conflict in society and somehow education got kind of plunked in the middle of this culture war, um, having to do with masking and vaccines and everything else. Um, and that has continued. And so then I think that has also sort of exacerbated the teacher shortage because it's difficult. Um, it's a difficult job. I mean, it's a wonderful job. I love it. But it's a difficult job to start with. And then when you add, um, you know, that kind of conflict and scrutiny and, you know, misinformation, um, it's difficult. 
people don't realize how hard work teaching is, what hard work mm -hmm. is. In your yeah. observation, why are some of our good teachers leaving the classroom? Stress. I think it's largely stress and a lack of support. Um, things get added to our plates constantly, you know, um, like just, you know, every time there's a mandate, there's paperwork that goes along with a mandate, right? Uh, so we have more things to do there. Um, we have more students added to our classrooms all the time. So when I first started teaching, you know, I typically have a class size of 25. Um, my class size is now, when I was still in the classroom, would be 38, sometimes oh 40 seniors in a room. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was not uncommon to have um, quite a few of them um, that, as I call them, were, were fragile learners that needed a little bit more of my time, focus, energy, and, and help. Um, so I just remember one, one class of ninth graders I had, I had 38 students in there. Um, two of them were needed one-on-one -on -one pairs. That's what was in their IEP. So I had two pairs in there. Um, and I had an additional 11 students that were on IEPs for a variety of reasons. I tended to have a lot of students that um, needed support with the, you know, emotional behavior kinds of things. And that's, that, that's my jam. That's fine. You know, I love those kids. Do you know what I mean? But that was, a, that was a lot, especially with ninth grade, because they're really still figuring things out. Um, and the, the solution was that to put another adult in my room. <laughs> So in my little classroom, you know, I had 38 students and four adults. So I just really felt like the, the ringmaster of a circus at that point, you know, and I, <laughs> we had to have a um, severe weather drill. And for my classroom, we had to go next door into the resource room. <laughs> like, we're not even going to fit in here for our severe weather drill. Um, so it's that kind of stuff where I think, because I'm, I'm older, I've been at this for a little while, it's a little bit easier to take it in stride. But I think it's a lot tougher for those teachers that are in their first three to five years. Um, if that was my introduction to teaching, I don't know that I would have stuck with it. You know, 38 kids and four adults in a classroom. Yes, <laughs> it was a lot. Like I said, it felt like the ringmaster of a circus for sure. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, what is yeah. it that brings you joy in teaching? Oh, the, the students and families. You know, I always... Um, yeah, I just, I feel like, because I left teaching for a while, and then kind of how I got back into it, I was coaching a speech team. Okay. And I realized that I uh, I had something, I could help these students, you know, that I had something to offer. Um, and so my first year, I still wasn't sure that I was going to be a teacher. Yep. Um, and I thought, well, if I can say that at least one kid in here had a something good happened because I was the teacher in this classroom. I'll stick with it. And I had that. And so every year I kind of think, do I, is it still me being in this classroom that is helping these students? You know? Um, and I think I have a different perspective than a lot of other teachers. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that that helps as well, but I do, I enjoy my students. Um, they're goofy and mm -hmm. they're fun. Um, I just, yeah, I enjoy teaching. You know, if I if all I had to do was just teach students, you know, all day, that it would just be a dream job, really. Isn't that amazing? Teachers yeah. teach and be left alone. What's up? Yeah. With that? I know. What is it that gets in your way then of teaching? What gets in the way of your being able to do what you want to do, like teach students? Well, you know, there's a lot of different state mandates. 
um, you know, things like that, that it, it gets to be a challenge. Um, there's time that gets spent on learning about this, that, or the other thing that we need to be doing. Um, there's different admin and I've had great admin, so I don't want to criticize administrators, but um, you know, they'll have an issue with a group of students. And so they think, well, we need to crack down on all students. And I, I don't need my students cracked down on. And I, you know, um, you know, that kind of thing I need to be able to, um, if I have a student that's going to the bathroom every day, it's not necessarily because they're being naughty in the bathroom. Sometimes they need a break, right? Sometimes they just need to get away from the 37 other students in the classroom for a few minutes, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, so that gets in the way a little bit. And like, so just the time, um, you know, every time we have something else that we have to do. So now we have like the read act, we have that education bill, which is, you know, more money is great for education because obviously I wouldn't have 38 students in my classroom if there was more money for teachers. Um, but unfortunately, you know, if there's not more money for teachers, then it's just more money collecting information about our students is sometimes what it boils down to. And how do they collect information about our students? Well, that's information that I provide. You know, when do I have time to provide that information and plan my lessons and, um, you know, meet with my students that need extra help, you know, and contact families to talk about what's going on, you know, what goals and, and needs do they have for their students that are in my classroom, like that kind of thing. So and there's only so many hours in the day. If cracking down on students worked, we'd have classes called cracking down on students. one I know it's, and that's where, and I, I think we still struggle with this a little bit, but I know it was absolutely an issue. Well, I consider it an issue, this belief that um, classroom discipline is a system of control when it, it is absolutely, that did not work for me. I can't be that person. Yep. It's ridiculous. There's no way I can control the behaviors or the attention or the focus of all the students in my classroom. Sometimes they can't even control their own behaviors because the coping skills that they've learned or the coping mechanisms they've learned aren't serving them. Um, and so, yeah, the system of control to me is ridiculous. Um, and so that that belief or that, you you know, you have to crack down on them. or And I still hear that, you know, when I have, um, when I've had student teachers or practicum students in my classroom, they're like, well, I know I have to start out strict, so but I can lighten up later on. And that's just no. And I know they're still getting that message. And that's not what it's about because you're not controlling your students. There's chaos on one end of a continuum and control yes. on the other. And there's a structure in between. Yeah. And that structure goes back and forth depending on the students. But management, as you have said, a big part of it is helping them manage their own behavior. Yes. And yeah. It's manage their emotions. Yes. And, and that's what they need. They need help finding coping mechanisms that yeah. work your kid that has his head down with his hoodie pulled up yeah. you know telling you to f off in the back of the classroom that's a coping mechanism that he has learned that has served him or he wouldn't still be doing it um and so it's it's your job it's not your job to control that student yes. you know it's your job to help that student learn different different coping mechanisms that is going to help him in his life and you know and so on that student yeah. what is that going to accomplish yeah no, and excluding that student from my classroom also is is not going to help me teach that student, <laughs> you know, um, and demanding compliance from that student is not going to help me. Demanding compliance from any student is not going to help me teach that student. And so that was, and that was a hard one. I didn't feel like I had a lot of models 
of how that could work. Like what, what does that look like if you're not trying to control your students? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so I try to, you know, when I do have practicum students or student teachers, it, you know, what you're in, you're in, you're, it's not what you're in control of, it's what your responsibility is. And it's your responsibility um, to provide a safe learning environment. It's your responsibility to create a learning community in your classroom. And it's your responsibility to be aware of the energy that you bring to that room and the energy your students are bringing to that room and then facilitate that so that it's healthy for everybody. That's really what it boils down to, but I didn't have a model for that when I was starting out. Well, that is great. That is good. Let's go for that. My undergraduate students often ask me, their number one concern is how do I manage a group of students? Yes. So the mm -hmm. stage is yours, Anna. What would you say to my pre-service undergraduate uh, students? Don't worry about like this idea that you have to control them, you know, get that out of your head. That's not what it's about. Um, a lot of them, you know, the, the issue with because the, the students can be, you know, little poops to new people coming in. Like, I'm not going to deny that. They will test boundaries. Um, so you do have to have boundaries, but you have minimum boundaries. And your students need to respect themselves and others, and they need to treat themselves and others with kindness. And that includes you as the teacher. Um, so, yeah, you don't want to be afraid of them. You don't want to be up there afraid, but you want to be honest with them. Um, and you focus on control that you have, which is control of your own energy. So you don't want to be giving off anxious energy, right? You want to be giving off confident energy. And if you're, in, if you do that, if you're in control of your own energy and your own self, so take a breath when you need it, um, you're going to be fine. You don't need to worry about controlling them. You want to get to know them when you get to know them and you have that sort of relational, um, piece going on, it's going to be fine. Oh, this is good stuff. <laughs> Also, greet them at the door and learn their names quickly. <laughs> That's the best advice I can give. And then there's a term for it, pre-corrective statements, which I don't love. But once you get to know them, you, want, you know the ones that are going to struggle a little bit to transition into your classroom. Um, you can, like the kid that never has a pencil or never has their anything with them, remind them as they're coming in. You greet them by name, cheerfully with a smile on your face, because smiling is, is reciprocal. They'll smile back. Yep. Um, and remind them where the pencil is <laughs> that they can get, you know, that kind of thing. And then that kind of sets the stage for the fact that it's your classroom, you know, and that you have expectations for them when they enter your classroom. But it's also their classroom, too. So, yeah. I love the smile idea. Oh, yeah. Your nervous smile. <laughs> well, it's reciprocal, yes. you know. So when you smile and it's hard for people to try to, you know, be out for out for you when they're smiling at you, you know. Yep. Um, so, yeah, because you are going to have challenging students. And again, I don't like to even think of them as challenging students, but fragile. They're fragile. OK. For whatever reason, they're coming to your classroom as a fragile learner. Um, and you need to kind of try to figure out why that is. And I want to kind of transition to science of reading, but this idea that you just need to get tough on students, uh, mm -hmm. where do, that never, ever works. Only in the movies does that work. I don't know. I, I really, it's hard. And then it's hard too. And I, I think it's just this self-perpetuating thing that happens um, because you have, you know, you have new teachers, they need to be observed you know, by administrators, um, you know, three times until they are, you know, on continuing contract three times a year. And one of the things that administrators look for is 
is, uh, or, or the belief, because not all administrators are looking for this, but the belief is, and, and honestly, some do, um, that every child in your classroom is quiet and paying attention. Yep. You know, um, and that how they pay attention looks the same as what's expected. You know, that there's this sort of dominant culture view of how, of what paying attention looks like and it's eyes front and do you know what I mean? And, and sitting calmly and not fidgeting and, you know, all these other things, that's just nonsense. And so there's this belief that if I am going to be seen as a good teacher, that means all of my kids are quiet and all of my kids are facing forward and all of my ki kids are listening to everything I say and following every direction I give them. And that's just not realistic because if you go into an adult professional development session, the, the, the adults in the room are not, all quiet and you know facing forward and following every direction they're given so why do we expect kids to do that and some so of I don't know. are even looking at their cell phones imagine that oh, yeah mm -hmm. for sure yeah I have yet to see um you know even our administrators come to meetings without their cell phones out and I know that they have to respond to emergencies but you have to understand the students think they're responding to emergencies too you know it's just kind of the nature of the beast you know and yeah so I don't know I, you know I honestly, I don't know where it comes from, but it's, it is, I think, a self-perpetuating thing that control, this is what control looks like, and this is what a, a good classroom looks like. It's based on, I think, isms, and it's based on this white Eurocentric idea mm -hmm. of control and subservience, yeah. and yeah. I'm going to learn you. It's not something students do. It's something you do to students, mm -hmm. and that is just so against how children learn. Yeah. And you don't want chaos either. I have seen, you know, classrooms that are just free-for-alls and that's not safe for anybody either. You know, it's not safe for the students. Yeah. I have expectations, like high expectations for every single student in my classroom. So it's not that, but I, they're going to, the high expectations require active learning, you and know, and active learning is not quiet. So the classrooms that I love going in and spending time in are cl classrooms where students are talking with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the interesting stuff where the teacher creates the structure where they can stand back and observe and interact. Those are the fun classrooms. Yeah. And they learn more because they you learn more. Yeah, because <laughs> your focus, you can't focus silently focus even the most, um, you know, highly adapted um brilliant student is not going to focus on a lecture for 60 minutes. It's just impossible. So they're not taking in, they're, they're phasing out and phasing in and phasing out and phasing in, and you're just not noticing it. You know, Eric Jensen, the brain research guy said, you know, young students can focus for about two to five minutes, high yep. school for about 12 to 15 minutes at most. Yep. So yeah. that doesn't mean our lessons need to be that long. It just means we need to say a little bit and have them interact somehow. Yeah. And I would tell, you know, and I was always honest with my students about that. Like this is, you know, the most that I can expect you to focus is probably about 10 minutes on me talking and get anything out of it. But sometimes I talk too much. Yep. Like that's the reality because I'm the one up here and I like to talk and I love to talk about books, right. And writing and communication. So I'd tell them, keep an eye on the clock and tell me <laughs> when I've hit 10 minutes and then I'm done. Um, and they were really good about that, you know, and then they, it was a concrete thing. They knew, right. That she's going to talk and this is important because we're going to have to do something with this later. Um, but they have control over how long I'm going to talk up there. 
too, you know, and it's sort of an agreement now that we have between us. They got to focus for 10 minutes, but then after 10 minutes, we're going to do something else with it. So that so works. Too. Tell me about the science of reading stuff. What, what is your, mm -hmm. what's happening there? Well, <laughs> I'm still learning about it, as you know. Um, it seems to me really reductive and it disregarding um, a lot of things that we know about our brains and how we learn and process information. And I think it disregards a lot of um, neurodivergence, right? It's, it's looking at this is the way a neurotypical brain operates. Um, yeah, so I, I just think it's missing a lot of pieces that would actually help our students. But as I said, I'm still learning about the science of reading. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely, you know, my experience is largely, although I'm K-12 right now, my experience is largely with, you know, upper adolescence. Um, and when I have a 15-year-old that's reading at a, let's say, third grade level, although I hate putting labels on it because it's only a third grade level because we've decided it's a third grade level. Um, but let's say I have a 15-year-old that's like that student needs more than what the science of reading would have to offer me, you know, and then I have students that can decode words at the appropriate grade level, um, but they don't have the stamina to read the amount of text that we would expect them to read by the time they're done with high school. Um, and they don't maybe have the ability to focus or their working memory is such that they're not able to hang on to the information long enough to do anything with it. Um, the science of reading does also not help me teach that student, you know, ways um, to reach their goals in life. So, so that's my concern with it. Other than uh, sounding out word instruction, what exactly is the science of reading? What do they promote? What are they trying? What do they want more of and less of? <laughs> well, I think that's what they want more of. Is sounding out word instruction? Yep, sounding out words. Um, I think they want more of districts um, purchasing the curriculum from them, you know, and purchasing professional development from them. Um, yeah, that's what, I don't know exactly what the end goal is, but that's what it feels like to me. Um, there's a lot of, um, oh, different, uh, I don't know what the, bandwagons, that's not the word I'm looking for, but different trends. All of a sudden, every teacher in your district needs this amazing professional development and all of your concerns as a superintendent or a principal or whatever um, will be allayed because your teachers will all of a sudden become master teachers after this, you know, 100 hours of professional development or whatever it is. And it, this feels like another one of those, um, but maybe there's more to it. I don't know. Well, you know, going way back with Madeline Hunter and Major and some of these guys wanted to scientificize teaching. You yeah. Know, you proof it. If you just follow the algorithm, mm -hmm. learning is uh, is guaranteed. And in the mm -hmm. 80s, it was back to the basics. And then it was No Child Left Behind with the Reading First Initiative. And that was a billion dollar boondoggle, this, this Read Act and Science of Reading. This is another wave of that. Let's mm -hmm. control teachers. And yeah. follow a teaching recipe. Mm -hmm. Sorry, this then, is not about me. <laughs> well, that assumes again that that all of the, you know, the algorithm is a math equation, and you're plugging in different sets of numbers all the time. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about having 38 students in my classroom. That's 38 different numbers. It's not the same number, right? So you're not gonna, you know, if if the 
curriculum is two and every kid is a different number, you're not going to get four all the time at the other end of it. You know, I mean, that's just an impossibility and it's, it's illogical to, to think that that's the way that's going to work. Every single student has a unique set of needs, challenges, and gifts, you yep. know? Um, and so that's kind of silly, <laughs> I think, to think that that's the way it's going to work. And it's it's not to say that sounding out words is not 100% that's important. A student has to be able to decode words, but they also need the schema to understand the words, mm -hmm. too. And that's not addressing that. They need the vocabulary and the context and, and that kind of thing. So, And if, you know, if that worked, if sounding out words was the answer, my class would be sounding out words 101. Yeah. And my next book would be Sounding Out Words. That's what I call it. How to yep. say words. And yeah. More complex than that. Oh, it is. I teach, a, well, I taught a technical writing class. I've taught it at the college level because I was a grant writer for quite a while. Um, so I've taught it at the college level and I've taught it at the high school level with seniors, you know. And um, so some of the things we would do, like we'd look at the plain language, um, the, that government <laughs> plain language requirement that they don't seem to follow themselves right and so sometimes for fun we would rewrite like a um oh like facebook's privacy policy or google's privacy policy like what if we re rewrote this in plain language and the fact is that you know i can sound out every word in google's privacy policy most of my students can sound out every word in google's privacy policy it does not mean that any of us understands it right um and so if it was just sounding out words then we would be able to i would be able to read every legal brief a medical journal scientific journals and i would be able to understand the articles that are in there and that's just not the case because i don't have the background knowledge that's required you know so it ignores all of that well what would you like parents to know about teaching and or about teaching reading well I guess when, when I think about what do I want my parents to know or families in general, because a lot of my students aren't necessarily living um, with their, their parents or gar even legal guardians sometimes, but I want them to know that teachers have the best interest of their students at heart. Um, nobody gets into te teaching thinking, well, I'm going to brainwash all these children or I'm going to destroy these children's lives. I want to ruin them or, you know, that is not what it is. And so what we have, we have teachers, you know, with great intentions and we have families with great intentions and we have communities with great intentions, but we all seem to be speaking at cross purposes sometimes. Um, and so I guess what I would want parents to know is that teaching is difficult and um, we have a lot of demands on our time, but we have the best intentions for their, their student. Um, and that if we could all come to a conversation with that understanding and assume good intentions that I think will make a lot more progress. Um, and as far as teaching reading, I think that um, for parents, what I want, if they're concerned, so I'll start at the high school level, if they're concerned about what their student is reading, um, they should have conversations with their student about that. Um, maybe read the same things that their student is reading and to also understand that whatever their student might be reading, they were exposed to a lot more online and to just kind of pay attention to that kind of thing and to just get involved with what they're reading, what they're interested in. Um, and to understand their student needs mirrors and windows. So to understand other 
people as well and other perspectives is important um, to being to growing up to be a good human being because we're raising adults we're not raising children and so that's we kind of need to just pay attention to that um, and then for younger students that are just learning how to read I think as a parent you just need to make reading fun for your student so sitting down and doing the sounding out words or forcing them to do something that's painful and aggravating for everyone um, is not is not necessarily the best for the family. So just have fun reading um, with your learning, re with your emerging reader, I guess. Does that make sense? It does. Ears and windows. You are a gold mine, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I've been at this for a little while. So, okay. <laughs> so what do you yeah. want to say to state legislatures, state legislators? Um, come to my classroom. Go to any classroom. Um, talk to teachers, talk to students, spend a day either, you know, job shadowing a teacher or just following a student around. Um, spend a couple days at an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school, and in different neighborhoods too, you know, not all in the same sort of socioeconomic, because our, our schools are segregated, whether we say they are or not, they are. Um, so spend some time in some different neighborhood schools and see what's really happening and what the actual intentions are. Um, I would also state, say to legislators, this job is hard enough without you using us to prove a political point or to gain political points or to raise money for your political campaign. Um, so it'd be nice if they didn't do that. That would be lovely. Please stop doing that. Yes. What, what do you want to say to administrators? Oh, that's a tough one. Administrators have a very, very difficult job. Um, I've worked with some really great administrators. I've worked with some not so great administrators, but they've all had a very difficult job. Um, so I think I would say to them the same thing that I would say to parents, just assume good intentions. Um, so if you hear something about me as a teacher, assume good intentions until you learn otherwise. Um, assume when you come into my classroom that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Um, you know, and ask me if you're, I, I had an administrator once come in to do, and after I'd been teaching, and it was his first, um, he was our new building principal. It's not his first administrative job, but he was, it was his first time as a um, principal in our building. And he, during his observation of me, took pictures of my students. And he's like, well, this one was coloring with smelly markers the whole time you were talking. I'm like, yeah, you know, um, she has some sensory needs that help her focus. Right. And he's like, well, none of the other kids seem bothered by it. I'm like, no, because it's that's the routine. Right. So just assume that I know what I'm doing. Assume that your teachers know what they're doing and then ask them what support they need. Don't you know, don't assume that, you know, what support they need because the teacher next door to them has a, a need doesn't mean that everybody has that need. Does that make sense? Assume good intention. There's another yeah. gold mine of quotes here. <laughs> Okay, the last thing, what would you like to say to Emily Hanford? Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not, I don't know. So I, I will admit, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing what I, I don't want community members to do, which is assume the contents of a book when they haven't read it. And I have not listened to her whole thing. So I, I don't know that I should really speak to that so much. But um my understanding is she assumes that we were all brainwashed into doing like just whole language and we never did phonics. And is that about right? Uh, I'm not going to say one word or the other, but <laughs> what a lot of people think. Brainwashed yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, is liberal professors like me have this agenda to make the world a social, uh, social to to do socialism. That's our agenda. Uh, and yes. To somehow ruin America by teaching a whole language or something. I have no idea. <laughs> so I, you know, I haven't listened to it. Um, I heard a synopsis of it on public radio and kind of rolled my eyes, you know. Um, I think that what I would tell her is that, again, same thing as I would tell legislators, meet a lot of different teachers, do some job shadowing, go to different neighborhoods. Um I think that she needs to understand where we are all doing the best we can with the information that we have. And when we have better information, we do different and we do better. And um, brain research is constantly evolving. And don't assume that we, one, are brainwashed because we're not idiots. And don't assume, two, that we can or would brainwash the children in our classroom. Um, if I could do that, all of my students would have A's and they would all bring their materials to class and turn everything in on time. But, you know, that doesn't happen because we're all individuals with agency. Well, I want, I, go ahead. I want to end with what I would say to Emily Hanford and is this. Okay. People within the literacy community think you are a joke. <laughs> and what you are doing to our children, we're going to feel the impact five years from now. You're making a career for yourself, Emily. Wonderful for you. You're famous. You're making lots of money. That is wonderful. Are you going to be there in five years when these kids still don't know what to do, still don't know what to read? Emily Hanford, you are a joke. Sorry about that. I had to get that in. No, that's okay. I just, like I said, I always, if because I have had um, reading materials that I have given children challenged, you know, and um, I, you know, I always, I read it before you challenge it. And I have not listened to her whole thing, just um, synopsis of it. And so I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what she's saying, except that this is my assumption of what she's saying. Um, and yeah, if you don't know, then don't speak on it. You know what I mean? So, and I don't feel she knows because what she was saying is not what I've been doing in my classroom. And it's not what anyone I know has been doing in their classroom. She's not a literacy. She's a radio journalist, never taught a class. I doubt she's even read a research article, let alone uh, uh, talk to a, a wide variety of literacy experts. She talks to who will support her preconceived ideas. Yeah. But anyway. A lot. About, no, I'm just, people assume a lot about what happens in classrooms. Yes. Um, and for a year, an entire school year, people had a front row seat to what I was doing in my classroom, right? And did not have any complaints or I, do you know what I mean? I did not yep. have families freaking out or, you know, um, so I think people just need to spend time in classrooms with teachers, not just assuming that they know what's going on in, in classrooms. So the READ Act in Minnesota, a hundred million dollar boondoggle, in five years, I'm going to say, I told you so. <laughs> so all our reading problems should be solved now uh science of reading people here in minnesota you've got the dyslexia stuff jammed down our throats and you've got science of reading so we expect now that all reading problems will be solved but in mm -hmm. five years when they're not who are you going to blame then what mm -hmm. shiny new product should we buy then i'm sorry this is about you <laughs> well they'll blame teachers <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> 
I were a betting person, that's what I would bet. They'll blame teachers. We gave you all this money. You didn't do what we told you to do. We trained you, but you didn't take that training to the classroom. You know, that that's what I that was what I would put money on. Yes. And you're the reason why the economy goes down and why. Yes. yes why? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Anna, this has been incredible. You have so much to give. I hope you spend another 30 Thank years you. in the classroom. Yeah, I do intend to go back like this, this job I have now, although I do really, really enjoy supporting teachers mm -hmm. like 100 percent. I love it. And I still get to go in classrooms. Um, but at some point, I do see myself back just solely teaching in a high school English classroom because it's just too much fun. So. What brings me joy as a college instructor in my graduate classes, when I see students online and I interact with Flip, uh, Flipgrid, to see the joy in their eyes, they're still mm -hmm. inspired to go. They love their jobs. That just keeps me going. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that, Anna, and yeah. my other grad students as well. All right. Thank you. Yep.